Do you know how painful it is to be sitting in a room like this and to go, nobody knows me? Because you, I don't even have to know your story. You want to be known and you want to know. Every single one of us, God created us with this yearning and desire for intimacy, to be known and to be accepted without fear of rejection. The reality is that we struggle with this, and we've been looking at this for the last two weeks because of sin. And we've been defining what sin is. But here are various hindrances or barriers to intimacy. One, uh, here's one. In, uh, we are not fully known. We're not fully known. Uh, one of the ways that we do this with God is we compartmentalize our lives. You know, there's certain areas of our lives. You've been a Christian for 10, 15 years. You go, why am I hitting a ceiling with God? It may be because you're going, God, you can be God. You can be Lord. You could have all of these other areas. But when it comes to this, I'm in control. When it comes to that, I'm in charge. When it comes to this, I don't trust you. When it comes to those things, I'm going to make it happen. And as long as you function from this perspective, I'm going to withhold certain areas of my life from God because I just don't trust you. I don't care how much you know the Bible. I don't care how often you turn in church. You're going to feel like you're hitting a ceiling in your relationship with God. Um, another email that I got from uh, somebody this past couple of weeks says, I felt like I could relate to all three types of relating to God you spoke of, Peter. Life under God, life from God, life for God. Talked about that first Sunday. I've operated out of all these at some point in my life. The piece that spoke to me so personally, though, was when you talked about intimacy with God and how hiding really prevents us from being intimate. He says, because of my wounds and life experiences, I've created so many compartments where I hide things. I hide my sin. I hide my personality. I hide my emotions. I hide my deepest fears and dreams. And I've done this for so long, I don't even realize I'm doing it. Peter, I've experienced much healing in this area of trusting God as my father, but there's this little part of me that wants to hold back, you know, wants to remain autonomous. But God is not letting me hold on to my idols. God's reminding me to turn towards him, to turn my heart towards him. I've experienced God coming after me, coming after me, him chasing hard after me to rescue his one lost sheep, leaving the 99. Because of that, I want to run to him, Peter. I want to be known by God. I want to be fully known. And he says, I want this to be true with God. I want it to be true with my wife. And I want to be true with my friends. For too long, I was more concerned with what a Christian looked like and being that. Wow. How many of y'all are sitting in here? And let's just be honest. You're more concerned about what a good Christian ought to look like, act like, behave, than actually knowing Jesus. Hello. Yeah, it's going to be one of those Sundays. Okay. But he says, but it was a hoax. Because Peter, nobody knew me. The real me. The one with all the warts and blemishes. That's the intimacy I want to experience to be fully known yet fully loved. It's difficult and painful, but I'm convinced that it's worth it. It's what my heart really desires. Here's a second reason why intimacy is hindered. is because we're not secure that we can be Fully accepted, fully accepted, and not fear rejection. We're not sure that we're fully accepted and fully loved. Married couples, I've been picking on married couples this sermon series or people because this is true of so many married couples. How many of y'all hide secrets from your spouses? And how many of y'all hide secrets like struggles and so on and so forth because you're afraid of what he or she will think or say if you told them the real you, the dark you? 
Hmm? Just common sense. You can't be in an intimate relationship with somebody where you're going, I don't know if you saw the real me, you'd like me. I don't know if you saw the real me, you would accept me. I don't, if you saw the real me, you'd want to love me. You know, the amazing thing, we do that with God. We do that with God. We do that with God. Do you know why we do that with God? Here's a whole sermon like two weeks from now. It's because we underestimate what happened at the cross and we overestimate what we do or don't do. We underestimate the significance of what happened at the cross, which is why I preach the way I do every week, and we overestimate what we don't or do. Because if you approach God and your equation is what I do or don't do, somehow we'll factor in how God treats me. If I'm good, I have a good day. If I have a bad, I have a bad day. If that is how you approach God, you will never experience intimacy. You fully with confidence, feel accepted in love without fear of rejection. Here's the third reason. Oh, let me just see another email real quick. Uh, she, she says, I really also related to the idea of life under God and life for God that you discussed the first week. For much of my life, I've perceived God as a demanding and expectant rule enforcer for whom I had an endless list of things to do. Can anybody go, I know what that's like? Nobody? Life under God, life for God. And what hit me, though, Pastor Peter, during the first sermon is that for me, it's not so much a specific area of my life that I'm unwilling to give up to God, but rather, she says, I've never trusted God to simply love me or that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. It's hard to believe that God loves me for who I am. More often than not, I feel like he loves certain things I do or strive to do for him. Can anybody relate? So I fill my life, she says, with things to do so that I feel like I have more to offer or so that I can distract myself from that sense of not being good enough. Ho, ho, ho. So you guys write really profound emails. She's literally going, I'll tell you why some of us are busy. Why is that? Because our busyness makes us feel sort of secure. Because as long as we're busy and doing things for God, I feel like he loves me and accepts me. Oh, my Goodness. These are the very things that kept me from experiencing God's love for so long. So as you said, rules are sometimes what inhibits intimacy more than anything. Here's the third thing. And by the way, we're addressing all of these in the sermon series. Third reason why intimacy hindered is because we don't invest the time and energy to nurture, to nurture this relationship. And how many of us are sitting here this morning going, oh, you got me. What? <laughs> I'm, I'm about to go on a tangent, and I'm trying to resist, but I'm going to. We approach God the way we approach human relationships. It's love. Why has it got to be so hard? It's love. Shouldn't love be so easy? Shouldn't be natural? It's love after all. Excuse me. Hello? Where do we get that from? Where do we get that if it's love, it's easy, it's natural, it comes naturally? And if you're sitting there going, I don't believe that. Really? What makes us think that when, it's, when it comes to intimacy, relationships, <laughs> and you take two sinful, self-absorbed, narcissistic, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> narcissistic, okay, 
sinners. What makes you think that those two people will all of a sudden become angels because they fall in love? I said this this morning. Listen, you guys. This is so huge. You know why? I'll tell you something that's true. You and I easily drift into laziness. We drift into sin. We drift into compromise. But you will never drift into holiness. You will never drift into being more like Jesus. You will never drift into a closer relationship with Jesus. You will never drift into intimacy. It's same for human relationships. It's same for God. Now, no, we'll stop right there. I got to tell you guys something. I'm doing something different that I normally don't do in sermon series. I'm going to actually spend a couple of Sundays in this sermon series talking about the practical how-to. Because I'm convinced, can I? vast majority of us. One of the reasons why we struggle with intimacy with God is we are flat out not spending time alone in prayer and in disciplined reading of the word. You mean like the basic essentials, Peter? Yes. And we actually think just by being at church, we'll drift into holiness. By being in small groups, we'll just drift. No, no. No. Do you know how hard it is to work on a marriage? Do you know how hard it is to work on a marriage? Married couples, help me out here. Is it hard? Two hands raised from Kasha and Adam in the back. It is hard. It is hard. It is hard. In a relationship with Jesus, it takes work. But that doesn't sound very romantic. Good Lord. I want to go, <laughs> we've been brainwashed by our culture, grow up. Anyway, okay, um, last week, last week we saw the devastating result of man breaking intimacy with God. This is re- recap, and when we broke intimacy with God, you guys, what happened? Psychological alienation. What do I mean? When you lose sense of, when you lose sense of intimacy with God because you were created for him, you lose a sense of yourself. You lose who you are. You don't know who you are. I don't know who I am. Psychological alienation. But it doesn't just stop there. It led to sociological alienation. In other words, when you lose transparency with God, you begin losing transparency with others. Listen to me. This is such a basic common sense principle. If you do not approach relationships with deep sense of abiding security, deep sense of, deep sense of security, deep sense of assurance, you can never move out into relationships in a healthy way. Isn't that just common sense true? If you are not deeply resting in your security, that you are known, that you are loved, that you are accepted by God, your creator, you will never move out into relationships in a healthy way. You're going to move out into relationships and either one, you're going to hide. You're going to hide. You're never going to be fully transparent. You're never going to be truly, you're never going to be truly you. You will never approach that person and go, mm, I'm not going to be the real me because if I thought it was the real me, you might not like me. And if you see the real me, you might reject me. And if you reject, I don't know what I'm going to do. So image management, careful image management, as the image you would project, the devastating effect of the fall is to not only reflect the relationship with God, but to one another. But in spite of all this, the amazing thing is, and as one of our emails wrote, God says, I'm not just fold my arms and go, you know what? You had your chance. We're done. God, throughout Genesis to Revelation, literally, is this picture of this God pursuing us, pursuing us, pursuing us. 
Jesus' beautiful imagery of shepherd leaving his 199 and going after the one. A woman who's lost a valuable coin and literally she's searching throughout the entire house. And a father who waits for his son day in and day out. God pursues and pursues and pursues. And today, as we continue to lay a foundation for this, we're going to see the beginnings of God reconciling man to God to be fully known, to be fully accepted without any fear. And his plan comes through a very unlikely candidate. And his name was, does anybody know? Abraham. Genesis 12. Genesis 12. We're going to spend just like three verses on this. And then Genesis 15 is our larger text. Genesis 12. If you have your Bibles, open it at. And if you didn't bring one, uh, the screen will be helpful for you. Genesis 12. One, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And I want you to go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Bible quiz, real quick. Those of you who grew up in Sunday school. How old is Abraham when God comes to Abraham with this promise? He is? Who said that? 75. Yes. 75 years old. God, 75 years old when, when God comes to Abraham and gives him this amazing promise on the surface. It was, Abraham, you're going to have lots of kids and your kids are going to grow up and make up the nation of Israel. But we know from the, regular, uh, the rest of the Bible that the promise was that all the people on earth will be blessed through you. There's one problem. What's the problem? Abraham and Sarah don't have any. don't have any children. So Abraham's sitting there going, okay, God, how about just one? All right? Let's start with one. Before I could have nation, let's start with one, okay? And God comes to Abraham, makes these amazing promises, and then God just disappears. And a bunch of years go by. And then after a bunch of years, God returns. And Genesis 15, here's what we find. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. If you're taking notes, when it says the Lord, word of the Lord came to Abraham, it's the first time in actually the first five books of the Old Testament that it says that the word of the Lord came to somebody. This word, the word of the Lord came to somebody, that's a phrase used for the prophets. In other words, what's happening here is God shows up and God's like, I'm God. I'm going to be real clear, real strong, okay? Abraham, it's me. Now we see why God had to do that, Okay. He says, do not be afraid, Abraham. Question, why is Abraham afraid? So we're in Genesis 15, got to Genesis 14. What's happening in Genesis 14? Abraham rescues his nephew. We're like Bible class this morning. Do you remember what his nephew's name was? Lot. Right? Nephew Lot from a group of tribe chieftains. And so Abraham is actually afraid that there's going to be retaliation. And so God goes, don't be afraid, Abraham. He says, I am your shield and your very great reward. Verse 2. But Abraham said, a sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. And we see why God had to come with his word. Abraham's not just afraid. Abraham's struggling with his faith. He's doubting. I'm wondering if anybody sitting here this morning could relate to what Abram's literally saying. Abram's going, God, you made these incredible promises, but how do I know you're going to do them? Anybody? God, you've shown up and done amazing things. I don't know if I can trust you. Anybody? God, 
You've done these amazing promises. But I, how do I know? How can I be sure about you? How do I know you're going to fulfill these promises? And I know there's like maybe two of us that struggle with this. Are you trustworthy? Are you faithful to your promises? Do you actually do what you're going to say? Is what Abraham is saying. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord again came to him. Abraham, that man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens and count this. How many of you guys grew up on a farm or rural areas? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. I actually grew up on a farm. Do you all know that? I came to the country when I was 10 years old. I grew up on a farm. And the thing is, when you're out in rural areas and farm, the stars are amazing. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't see stars because we live in the city, right? What do you got? Light pollution is what they call it, right? So here's Abraham. And God goes, Abraham, come on, come on. Takes him outside. And Abraham's looking up. And I just picture this. It's lit up with stars. And God goes, can you count them? That's how your descendants are going to be. God, how do I know you're going to come through? How do I know you to fulfill your promises? Can I trust you? God's response isn't, the word of the Lord came, oh, you have little faith. What's wrong with you? Which is what I would have done. God is gentle. God is kind. God is loving to someone who's deeply struggling with his face and saying, come on. Abraham, come here. Let me show you something. Look up. I'll come back to that in a moment, okay? Verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. There is so much theology in verse 6 that we literally have like one minute to spend on it, okay? Let me give you a couple parallel passages. Romans chapter 4, verse 1 through, uh, 1 through 3, and 16 and 25. And Galatians 3, 6 to 9. Paul actually picks up on this theme, and literally here's what's happening. Here's Abraham who's doubting, who's struggling with his faith. And God shows him this promise. And the Bible says that when Abraham believed the promise of God, God credited to his righteousness. God made him righteous. God made him acceptable. God gave him a standing in such a way that God says, you and me, we're good. What did Abraham have to do? Answer? What did Abraham have to do? Answer? Nothing. Abraham does absolutely nothing to be made righteous with after the after nine o'clock service, I had somebody who been coming to our church for a while came up to me, shot up to me, and he goes, I just gotta tell you something. He says, I'm so glad that every Sunday you talk about this righteousness come from Christ, righteous come from Christ, how we're made righteous with with with, with Christ because of what Christ has done. I said, Why? And he said, Just gotta be honest. Like I've been going to some other churches and just kind of checking it out because my wife and I are thinking about moving. And he said this, he goes, I and reminded in other churches on a regular basis that you're right with God because of what you do. You're right with God because of what you perform. You're right with God because of how you obey. You're right with God because of the rules and regulations. And he said this, he goes, it is so easy for me to get up on a Monday morning and just drift into that and going, yeah, that's why I'm acceptable. And there's some of you sitting here this morning, and you're sitting there going, oh, there he goes again, believe in righteousness. The reason why you don't have intimacy with God is because you fear his rejection. The reason why you fear his rejection is because you think that your righteousness is about you. And already in Genesis 15, God's going, oh, no, 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 no. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's free. Okay, we go on. He also said to him, I am the Lord 
who brought you out of Ur, out of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. In verse 8, but Abram said, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? Doubts are gone for one verse. Doubts are right back. And if you do this, I trust you. What have you done for me lately? I trust you. What have you done for me lately? I trust you. What have you done? For, you trust, I trust you. But what have you done for me lately? Well, what about what God did like six months ago? Oh, yeah. But what has he done for me lately? <laughs> I trust you. So don't be so harsh on Abraham. Like, God, the Lord of the Lord. Oh, good Lord. The Lord of, word of the Lord came to many of y'all. And you're sitting here this morning, and you are in Abraham. She's going, I don't trust you. Are you faithful to your promises? I don't trust you. Are you faithful to your promises? Here's the thing, though. If you look deeper, Abram's doubts actually here are a little bit different from his doubts earlier. His doubts earlier are different. What do I mean? The thing that prompts Abram to go, I don't know. I have doubts. Are you sure? It's different. Why? What prompts that is God saying, verse 7, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. In other words, what God is doing in verse 7 is reminding Abraham of a covenant that he's entered with Abraham. Everybody say covenant. Everybody say covenant. Covenant. He's reminding Abraham of a covenant. And that reminder of a covenant is what prompts Abraham to go, whoa. Because here's what happened. Earlier, God entered into a covenant with Abraham and God said this. God said, I am the Lord your God. I'm going to do these things and you're going to do these things. And then Abraham, in verse 8, is going, God, earlier, I was going, can I trust you? Are you going to do what you say? I don't know, God. But now he's going, God, I don't don't know if I trust me. God, I don't know if I can come through. God, I don't know if I can hold up my end of the deal. Earlier, my doubts were about you. Here, my doubts are about me. I don't know if I can do what I promised to do. Obey you fully? Walk before your commands? I don't know if I can do that, God. Uh, Abram says, God, I don't know if I can keep my promises. And what God does amazingly is he begins to respond to that. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Will you give me two minutes, two minutes real quick, to talk about something that's important? Will you look at how God deals with someone who doubts? How, how, does, God, how does God deal with someone who doubts? you know that every week, every week I talk to somebody in our church who's genuinely struggling with their faith? And we're not just like small things like, you know, I don't know if I can do it. Struggling with their faith like, I don't know, Peter, if God exists. I don't know if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. I don't know. And they have huge doubts. And one of the things that they fear, though, is they fear that this church is not a safe environment to doubt. And here's what I want you to see. What does God do? How does God treat a doubter like Abraham? And how does God treat doubters and people struggle with doubts throughout the Bible? A good example of John 20. Do you remember Thomas? Thomas, John 20? Do you remember Thomas? Thomas is the only disciple who's not there when Jesus rises. And when Jesus finally sees him, here's what we find. John 20. Jesus says, hey, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. He says, stop doubting and believe. And this is an amazing balance for us as a church and for who we want to be. What does Jesus do? He doesn't just go, I told you for three years I was going to rise. What the heck is wrong? What does Jesus do? Thomas, come here. Put your hand in. Just think about this. Think about this. Put your hand in. That's not enough for you. Put your hand on my side. He's gentle. He's loving. He's kind. But he doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't just go, well, doubters going to doubt. And I just go, well, it's just you. 
That's what people are going to call you, Doubting Thomas. <laughs> you know, you don't know, know, just label him like we do, right? We label people, and it's like self-fulfilling prophecy. Where did that come from? But anyway, like that's what we do. That's what we do. Jesus doesn't do that. What does Jesus do? He treats him with kindness and gentleness, and he says, stop doubting. He doesn't leave you in your doubts. Why? Because that is not a place from which you could find truth. Why is this critical? Some of us grew up in churches and we walked away. Do you know why? Because you grew up in churches where it was communicated, it's God's word. He's God. Do not doubt. Honestly, how many of us grew up in churches like that? When you grew up in churches where you can't be open about your doubts, where it's unsafe to doubt, that church will create skeptics. That church will create skeptics. Do you know why? Because if it's unsafe to doubt, you will never ask questions. And if you never ask questions, you will never find answers. See, some of you, and I talk to you, you grew up in church. You're like, it was an environment where everybody looked like they believed everything. They got it. They never doubted. And so I was never safe to, because if I, everybody was like, oh no, what's wrong with you? So I never asked my questions. And once I went to college or whatever else, you know the story. Once I really began wrestling with my doubts, I said, there is no God. I want you to know, this is a church where you can safely doubt. Church, can you say amen to that? I want this to be a church where doubters and skeptics and cynics can come and go, can I be honest about my doubts? Can I actually say, I don't think God's real. Can I say that and still be accepted? And the answer from your pastor is yes. Wow, that draws an applause. It didn't do it in the morning service, but that is who we are. That is who we are. However, <laughs> however, just like Jesus, we're not going to let you just remain in your state of doubting forever. We say this in our church it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. None of us are. None of us are. People sitting next to you, they're all jacked up. They're just, it's just that they're never fully known, see? That's why, we're preaching. That's why we're preaching this sermon series, okay? All jacked up. Here's the thing. Here's the, listen, 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 listen. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. We love you too much. Let's just stay there. Because if all you do is doubt everyone, everything, you will never find truth. And God loves you too much to stay there. And if you're a doubter, skeptic, doubting all the time, can I just say one thing real quick? If you're a doubter, be consistent. I doubt everything, everyone. Okay, be consistent. Doubt your doubts. I'm a skeptic. I'm skeptical about everything. Okay, then be consistent. Be skeptical about your own skepticism. And I want to say this to cynics. I'm cynical about everything and everyone. Okay, then be cynical about your own cynicism for once. Just be consistent. That's all I'm saying. And the church said, no. And the church is like, we hate you. (laughs) That's all right. That's all right. Okay. Because I'm fully known. Okay. I'm fully. (laughs) You know exactly where I stand. Okay. Verse 7. Verse 7. He also said to him, listen to this. I am the Lord your God. Oh, I've already read that. Okay. Where are we? Okay. So how does God answer Abraham? How does God answer Abraham's doubts about himself? Oh, this is amazing, you guys. Check this out. Verse 9. Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. (laughs) 
I didn't know that's how you pronounce it. This morning I was like, what's a heifer? What's a heifer? And that's my fathishness. I came to the country when I was 10 years old. You guys all know that, okay? Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram. All I know is it's an animal. That's all that matters. Each three years old, along with the dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10, Abram brought all these to him. And then check this out. He cut them in two. He arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he's not cut in half. Listen, pay attention. Pay attention to this morning. So God goes, Abraham, Abraham, all right, so uh, bring me these animals. And Abraham goes, okay. And God doesn't go, and Abraham just doesn't go, okay, God, here it is. What do you want me to do next? No. Abraham brings the animals, and without God saying anything, Abraham proceeds to cut the animals in half. Use your imagination. He lines up the animals, one side, one half, another side, one half. And presumably what would happen is blood would drip and spill, creating an aisle, a blood path. And you and I sit there going, what the heck is going on? Here's what they're about to, listen, ratify a covenant. Or the technical term was cut a covenant. Now, we don't know what a covenant is because you and I live in a culture of, all the lawyers in the house said, contracts. We live in a world of contracts. Contracts are very different from covenants. Contracts, primarily found in written cultures versus covenants or cultures. Contracts are two people come together. Like if you're doing house renovations and projects, you know, or you're refinancing a house. Jenny and I refinancing a house. What the heck? Can somebody explain to me, why do I have to sign a thousand pages? What is that? What is that, right? My arm is like, I'm getting like cramps in my arm after a while. That's not a signature, Peter. That looks like an X. I'm like, I don't care. It's just, you know, get, get done with it. It's contract culture. Two people come there on a piece of paper. They write all their obligations and their terms. And then they go, okay, let's, to ratify it, what we do. What do we do? We sign on the dotted line. Okay? And that's how we called each other accountable. Covenants. Radically different. Covenants. If you do not understand what a covenant was, and if I do my job well for the rest of next whatever minute, Literally, the entire Bible will come alive to you in a way that it never has. Because the entire Old Testament and New Testament is founded upon this concept of a covenant. And it wasn't just what Israelites did. It was what everybody in their culture did. A covenant, a covenant, a covenant. Now, I'm going to go through what a covenant is. By the time we get to verse 17, listen, by the time we get to, I'm just like telling you, verse 17. If something resonates with you, or it's just like an, <gasps> or Amen, whatever. I want you to clap or do something, okay? Like, tell me or let me know that you actually understood. First thing about a covenant, listen to this, was they were entered into by two people, two parties, who were totally and utterly committed, inextricably bound to one another. In other words, these weren't just two random people going, hey, let's do a covenant. No. The closest thing we have in our culture is what? A marriage. Second thing about a covenant is that there were terms outlined what the respective responsibilities would be for the parties entering into a covenant. So here's what they would do. Two parties would come together and go, what are the terms? What will you do? And what will you promise to do? And here's what I'll do, what I'll promise to do. And they would outline these terms of what the covenant is. Check this out, check this out, check this out. So Moses, in Exodus 19, is on top of Mount Sinai. And he's meeting with God. And he is renewing this covenant that he's made with Abraham right here in Genesis 15. And after Moses meets with God, what happens? Here's the third thing about what a covenant had. There were summary documents. Summary documents summarize the entire covenant terms between the parties into a shorter list. By the way, can you go back to the former slide before? Terms, terms. Do you guys know what the death value of the Old Testament is? Do you know what the death value of the Old Testament is? I'll tell you. Death value. How many of you guys try to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Anybody? Okay. Here's what happens, right? I'm going to read through the whole Bible. Genesis. 
This is interesting. Wow. Exodus. Wow, it's a fascinating story. The Red Sea. And then you get to Numbers. And halfway through, you're going, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can make it. And you barely finish Numbers. Or Leviticus, I should say. And then you get to Numbers, fourth book. And it's the same thing. And it just seems like random, just command after command after command after command after command. And by the way, if you're counting, there are 634 commands in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Do you know what those are? Those were covenant terms. Those commands were covenant terms that God says, this is what I will do, this is what you will do. 634 for us. Did you actually know that when you read the first five books, that the, place, the terms that God placed on himself was even longer? So here's what they did. 634, that's a lot. So can you imagine? I mean, it'd be like 5,000 pages long, getting together going, okay, remember our terms? So here's what they did. They had what's called, third, please, summary document. And what summary document was, was that they summarized all the commands in such a way. It could be a short list, and they put it on something that they can carry. It was called the summary document. Now, check this out. Moses is at Mount Sinai with God. God renews the covenant, and God says, Moses, come here. I want to give you something. And Moses receives Two stone tablets, which were written, what? The ten. Do you know what those were? Those were summary documents of the terms between God and his people. You're sitting there going, why should that matter? Do you know why it matters? Listen to the way the story goes down when God actually gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. It's found in Exodus 20. Here's what we find. Exodus 20. This is so, so powerful to me. And God spoke all these words. He says, I am the Lord your God. That's covenant language. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Listen, guys. What is the context in which the Ten Commandments are given? The context in which the Ten Commandments are given is God coming to Moses going, Moses, you're my people. I'm your God. We're already in. We're already committed. We're already in this deal together. And secondly, I already brought you out of Egypt. Question, church. What did Israel have to do to be set free from bondage to slavery in Egypt? Answer? Nothing. God says, I'm your God. I'm your Lord. I love you. We're in this relationship together. I am committed to you. And out of grace and mercy, I delivered you out of Egypt. So therefore, here's the first covenant term. Have no other gods before me. Is it powerful? We don't read it that way. We read the Ten Commandments and go, okay, I don't know if I'm your God. I don't know if you're my God. I don't know if you're my God, God. We read the Ten Commandments and go, so if I do these things, then you'll be my God. Exodus 20, I'm already your God. So therefore, we don't look at the Ten Commandments and go, so if I do these things, you'll set me free. God goes, I have delivered you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.13. So therefore, are you, is this resonating with you? Imagine me and Jenny at the altar and the officiant going, okay, y'all ready to do this thing, tie the lot? Okay, Peter, do you commit yourself to your wife? Yes. Okay, here's the first thing. Don't cheat on her. What man in his right mind would go, I don't know about that. 
that's what we do. <laughs> I have no other gods before me. And we read that as a requirement to be loved by God. Do you think I want to love my wife because it's a requirement to be loved by her? You're sitting there going, why does this? I'll tell you why this matters. Do you know why many of us don't have the proper motivation or the power to live a life of godliness, to live a life of holiness, to pursue godliness? Because unless you know deep down inside that God is your God and he has already delivered you, that you are in, that you're accepted, that you love, that you are in with God, you will not have the proper motivation nor the power to pursue holiness, the power to pursue holiness, the power to pursue righteousness, the power to work out our salvation, as Paul says in Philippians, with fear and trembling comes when we are deep down inside assured of the fact that he is our God. He has delivered us from kingdom of darkness the kingdom of light, and he will not ever let us go. When that truth resonates in our hearts, that's the only way we will have the proper motivation and the power to go. Why would I cheat on you? Why would I not want to love you? Why would I want to give my all to you? I'm telling you right now, if you look at God's commandments and you read Exodus 20, like, obey these things, then I will be your God. Obey these things, then I'll set you free. Obey these things, then you're in. You will never have the proper motivation nor the power. Gospel fuel, gospel power comes when we know, when we know, when we know, when we know that out of grace, God says, I am your God, I have delivered you. Is that good news? You guys, it will radically alter it's interesting because the people that this really resonates with are people who really struggle keeping up the commands. And for some of us that are like, I'm doing all right, you know, Ten Commandments, maybe like one or two of those I struggle with the rest. We go, righteous because of me? Righteous because of me? Righteous. Then there was an oath. Oath, essentially, were terms that were outlined verbally, verbally by the two parties. Equivalent, again, will be wedding vows, you know. Pastor goes, do you promise to love and to cherish through sickness and health? And it's been a while since I've done it. I'm a little out of practice. Sickness and health and sickness. Rich or poor, all the above, right? And the dad standing right there and the guy could, like, see his father-in-law future, you know, corner of his eyes going, yes, sir, I will. Well, the covenant, listen to this, in the Old Testament, in that culture, you know what the penalty was for breaking it? It was death. And I'm thinking, you know, we should probably bring that back. <laughs> I tell you, the divorce rate would be like sky low. <laughs> then there were curses and blessings. Did I say sky low? Oh, jeez. Curses and blessings. Curses, curses, curses outlined about what happened if you didn't keep your end of the covenant. Blessings, of course, would be what, you know, would happen to you. And by the way, Deuteronomy 28. Drop that down. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is when, when Moses sort of sums up uh, the blessings and the curses. And then the last thing, if you put up the next one, please, was the ratification symbol. And here's the thing. So all of these things were done between two covenant parties. And so here's what happened at the very last thing. To make this thing official, to sign the dotted line, what people did was this. They cut the animals in half, and the blood would form the aisle and both parties would walk between this is their side, side they would walk between and they would say this 
may be done to me like these animals if I ever break the covenant. May it be done to me as these animals if I don't fulfill my deal, my end of the deal. May it be done to me. May I be cut. May I bleed. May I die. May I be food for the birds of the air. And may I be food for the animals on the ground. If I don't keep up my end of the deal. And when one guy was done, the other guy will be like, okay, my turn. May it be done unto me. And they will go back and forth, back and forth. By the way, I said this morning, if you have like a contract job, like renovating a house or something, you know, next time and the guy's over, try doing this and go, you know, let's not do the dotted sign, signing on the dotted line thing. I have a better idea, okay? When we go shopping, we'll come Here's what God does. Look at this. Look at this. And this was common. This was common. Jeremiah 34, 18. The men who violated my covenant have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me. I will cheat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. This is common knowledge. This is how you ratify the covenant. We all know it. Now, here's the thing. One more thing. One more thing about the covenant. When the covenant was ratified, when the covenant was entered into by two parties where one was greater than the other, in other words, when a king entered a country and, and defeated the other king and his country, when the king would... When the king of that uh, country that was taken was made a vassal. So if a covenant was made between a vassal and a king who conquered their land, only the vassal, the weaker party, walked between the path and ratified the covenant while the king sat on the throne and watched his conquered vassal. Why? It was was gracious just for the king who conquered to even enter into a covenant instead of going, I'm going to make you my slave. You're going to do everything else. So only the weaker vassal. Now, here's the thing. I'll set this scene up for you. There's Abraham talking to God. The animals are cut. Blood path is formed. What's, Anna, what's Abraham expecting right now? What's Abraham? It's time to what? Ratify the covenant. It's time for what? Abraham to walk between. It's time for him to walk between the covenant, the, the, the animals. But what is Abraham thinking? He's going, no. Why? Abraham's going, God, I know the covenant. I know what we made. You said you were going to bless me, nations. My job is to obey you perfectly. My job was to obey you perfectly. And Abraham's going, I can't do that. You know it. I know it. I can't do that. Walk it. That's signing my death warrant. Walk. That's signing my own death warrant. I'm not going to do that. Look what happens. Verse 11. (laughs) Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the words dreadful darkness literally means darkness of terror, darkness of terror. Abraham is not just, Abraham is freaking out. He is scared to death. It's at this point that to me, my personal opinion, the most amazing thing in the entire Bible happened. Remember I told you guys about this moment? Because look what happens in verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Oh, okay. You want me to explain a little bit? Okay, I'll explain. Okay. 
the two terms in Hebrew are a little bit, little bit difficult to explain. The smoking fire pot literally means billowing smoke. And the term blazing torch literally means blazing lightning. Here's what you need to know about this. These are two terms that are found to describe God on Mount Sinai with Moses. Who is this? This is God. This is a theophany. This is a physical manifestation of God. Question, what is he doing? What is he doing? He is... <laughs> the term blazing lightning in Hebrew. Have you ever seen a lightning? Of course you have. I saw this amazing picture, by the way, of somebody captured lightning storm in, in Grand Canyon. And you've seen it? Just... Uh, what that's literally saying in Hebrew is this. A lightning, a blazing lightning. And it held its shape. Imagine a blaze of lightning appearing and holding its shape. Imagine the sound, the fire, the smoke, the heat. God appears blazing lightning and he walks between the pieces. What is God saying? God is saying, Abraham, if I do not do my end of the deal, may I be cut to pieces. Abraham, if I do not fulfill my covenant obligations, may I be done as to these animals. May the immortal become mortal. May the impossible become possible. May I die. God himself die. Now, that's not even the most amazing part. Because what is the most amazing part? Where's Abraham? The covenant's already ratified. It's done. Where is Abraham? He's sitting on the side going. He's sitting on the side shaking in his, you know what, going, what? Because what Genesis 15 tells us is that God not only walked the blood path on his behalf, he also walked the blood path on whose behalf? Abraham. And all of our behalf. Literally what God is saying in Genesis 15 is, Abraham, not only will I pay the penalty for my unfaithfulness, although I will never be, I will also pay the penalty for your faithfulness. May I not only die if I don't keep my end of the deal, but I'm also going to die if you ever fail to keep your end of the deal. And Abraham, I already know, by the way, you like my lightning, you know, impression of God. Everybody, I already know that you're not going to keep the covenant. I already know that your people are going to break the covenant terms over and over and over again. You're going to worship other idols. You're going to worship injustice. And God says, but you just sit there and watch because I will pay everything that is necessary. Why would God do that? Abraham said, they're going, this is not what we do. Because all of a sudden, God introduced something for the very first time. He introduces a concept called Grace. Byron's favorite word. He introduced a concept called unconditional. Listen, grace covenant. He introduces something called, it doesn't matter what you do or don't do, because I've already done it for you. Unconditional 
grace covenant. And if you're sitting there going, well, how would God, why would God? Mark 15, verse 15. At the sixth hour, what's the next word, you guys? Darkness came. Thousands of years later, listen to me, please. Darkness, terror of darkness. Terror of darkness fell on somebody else. And at that ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53. You guys know these passages. He's oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Talking about Jesus. Verse 8. He was cut off. That's covenant language. Cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Thousands of years later, the immortal became mortal. The impossible became possible. The creator son of God died. For who? For who? Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith, so that by faith, so that by faith, because of grace, because of grace, because of grace, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. All because thousands of years ago, God said to Abraham, you sit and watch. I have heard, I have heard people say, all religions are the same. Please don't say that. That's dumb. Please don't say that. You show me one religious faith system in the world that says that the creator of God took on flesh and bone and was cut and died for sinful humanity. Well, that, that idea of God is offensive to me. If you just open your heart, you may see that's the most beautiful thing that's ever been done in the history of the world. How did God fulfill his promise made to Abraham? Jesus Christ, the son of God, was cut off. Jesus Christ, the son of God, was forsaken. Jesus Christ, the son of God, was abandoned. Why? So that your salvation and my salvation would not depend on us, but on Christ. So that you could live the rest of your life, every second moment of it with full assurance. God, I am fully known and fully accepted. And I need not fear your rejection. If God would not abandon you, if God would not reject you, if God would not forsake you. In Genesis 15, when he says, walk the path, this is what we do. If he says, I will do it. What makes you think now that this creator God, because you had a bad week, would go, we're done. Does that even make any sense to you? There's no other religious faith system in the world, Christian or not, that says that the creator of God became human so that you don't have to do anything. But by faith in him, when you believe in him, the father of the covenant, that Christ did all this to fulfill the covenant in terms of you can be saved. Oh, goodness gracious. Do you know why when we hear this, we just go, hmm. 
It's because we underestimate the significance of what happened at the cross. And we overestimate the significance of what we do or don't do. And the only thing that will break that pattern in your life is not trying harder. You know that doesn't work because you've been trying that for like 10 years. It's allowing this gospel truth to become powerfully real. And intimacy, look at me. Oh, I don't know if I want to be fully known. He walked the blood path for you. And you're afraid of being known to this man? Ah, I fear his rejection. He walked the blood path for you so that you will never fear not being accepted again. For there is neither heaven nor earth or anything in all creation that will ever separate you from the love of God. You don't trust him? You don't trust him? I don't know if I can. He who did not spare his son, but gave him for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? You're holding on to that thing going, God, oh, I don't know if I can let go. I don't know if I can give you control, if you're powerful, if you love me. God's going, really? And for some of us, it's been a while since we've spent time with him. God's not up there going, when's the last time you did your quiet time? When's the last time you read the Bible? Look at, I think God, honestly, God the Father's up there going, I miss you. I miss our time together. I miss when we used to sit and we used to walk. I miss when we used to dialogue. Do you remember that? Yeah, God, I do. I've been so busy. I know. Me too. <laughs> God's going, I'm running the universe. What are you doing? You're running your own life. Give me a break. You know what I mean? God's going, I have time. No, I'm just kidding. That's religious. See, I'm making you feel guilty. I don't want to do that. <sighs> Honestly, I don't know why we duck and why we hide. And we, I don't know why we do that. I'll tell you why we do that. Because we don't know who it is that did all this for us. You know, today what we did was um, we ended this service actually by serving communion. And I'll tell you why we did that. Because the author of Hebrews comes along, right? And he says the following verses. Check this out. Hebrews chapter 6. Put up the next slide, please. It says, Jesus Christ has become a guarantee of a better covenant. And then Hebrews chapter 9. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal earners now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. This thing that we do once a month when we come up, take the bread. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this signifies? This literally shouts to you. And I'm going to say this to you when I serve you today, when you come up, this shouts to you and me. Jesus kept his promises. He will keep his promises to you. So, Lord, we come. And this morning, God, I know I need it. And I know that there are some brothers and sisters in this room today for whom 
this is not just a formality. It's not just something I do. But by taking it, we declare with our mouths and with our lives. You are the guarantee of a better covenant. You are trustworthy. You are faithful to your promises.